0: An article in The Atlantic about a few years ago uh, described a fungus that affects ants in the wild. Here are a few excerpts from the article. To find the world's most sinister examples of mind control, don't look to science fiction. Instead, go to a tropical country like Brazil and venture deep into the jungle find a leaf that's hanging almost exactly 25 centimeters above the forest floor. No more, no less. Now look underneath it. If you're in luck, you might find an ant clinging to the leaf's central vein. Jaws clamped tight for dear life. But this ant's life is already over. And its body belongs to the zombie and fungus. When the fungus infects a carpenter ant, it grows through the insect's body. Over the course of a week, it compels the ant to ascend to a nearby plant stem. It stops the ant at a height of 25 centimeters, a zone with precisely the right temperature and humidity for the fungus to grow. And because the ant typically climbs a leaf that overhangs its colony's foraging trails, the fungal spores rain down onto its sisters below, zombifying them in turn. So what we have here is a hostile takeover. The fungus might also exert more direct control over the ant's muscle, literally controlling them as a puppeteer controls a marionette doll. The ant ends its life as a prisoner in its own body. Its brain is still in the driver's seat, but the fungus has the wheel. The ant, may I suggest, has a new head, thereby a new agenda. The ant has started to follow the plan and aims of its new head, and that plan is the plan of the fungi. Spread the spores of fungi to all the other ants around Every action of the ant under the control of the fungi is for one thing and one thing alone. Fulfill the plan of the fungi. Like the carpenter ant, Ephesus was under the control and influence of cosmic powers. The principalities, powers, rulers and authorities. Their agenda was the agenda of these satanic forces. So dear believers at Westmount Bible Chapel, if Christ is the head of this local body, how is our life contrasted with those in Ephesus? How is the life of those controlled by Christ different from those under the control of demonic forces? Beloved, please open your copy of scripture to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. To answer this question. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 to 10. For today's sermon titled God's Riches and Sin's Ruin, we're going to look at three points. Ruin, riches, and an application. Three points. Ruins, riches, and an application. For our last session in Ephesians 1 verse 15 to 23, we considered the prayer of Paul. That the believers of Ephesus would understand the confident hope of God's calling, the magnificent value God has placed on them, and the power that God has exercised toward them. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, exalted him above every cosmic power, and set him as head over the church, and the church has his body and his fullness." Now in this passage that we're going to consider today he proceeds to talk about them talk to them about a contrast between their previous condition and their current life their previous condition was outside Christ and their current life is in Christ Paul is going to state fact after fact so that these believers will realize how much they owe To the magnificent plan and power of god accomplished in christ let us consider our first point the ruin that sin brings on unbelievers paul fires fact after fact at these ephesian believers to make his point the first one is that they are dead in sin let's read chapter 2 verse 1 and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. <clears throat> Isn't it fascinating? Paul used the word dead. He could have said, we were slaves. He could have said, we were in debt. He could have used a myriad of other phrases. But he chooses dead or death. This is because from the beginning of the story, all the way in Genesis, sin and death, have been intimately linked. Remember the words that God used with Adam and Eve? The day you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Adam and Eve carried the sentence of death on them, and from the, mo- from the moment they ate the fruit. In fact, they died in the spirit. Paul isn't telling them though that they carried a sentence. He isn't telling the Ephesian believers that they carried a sentence of death. He isn't saying, guys, <clears throat> guys, you all lived a life that will end in death. He isn't saying, you guys, you're as good as dead. He isn't even casting judgment on them and saying, you might as well, you know, be dead because of your sins and trespasses. Rather, he says, you are dead in death trespasses and sins this is old testament language from the prophets that talk about the spiritual condition of people who are separated from god this is marked by sins and trespasses paul is saying your spiritual death means that you are completely alienated from god you continued in the past to be separated from God and under the rule of death. Paul isn't using metaphors. He isn't saying that you're figuratively dead. It's not a figure of speech. The unbelieving Ephesians in their past, they were dead in their spirit. They had no connection to God. It was their state. Much more, he doesn't use just one word, death, to describe their state. He uses two more words. He uses the words trespasses and sins. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Some might say he's using two words, and both of those words mean the same thing, and maybe he is. In Norwood, one side of our property shares a border with three other properties. Uh, the first one is a Masonic Lodge. The second one is a family with pigs and chickens. And the third is a strip of land that no one's allowed to build on. Now, the family that owns the pigs and chickens uh, bought the small strip of land a few months ago. And the first change we saw was that they put up a big sign on on County Road 45, and it said, no trespassing, no trespassing. What the owner is trying to communicate to the public is, according to the Trespass to Property Act of Ontario, you are a legal offender if you cross this boundary without my permission. It doesn't matter whether the offender reads it or not, by the way. As long as the sign is up and meets the requirements of the province of Ontario, the trespasser is an offender to the law. Trespasses in scripture is a word for someone's conscious and willful actions against God's holiness and righteousness. It is crossing the boundary marker of the law of God. It is an act of treachery against God. Let me repeat that. To trespass against God is to consciously and willfully act against God's holiness and righteousness. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, we considered that the forgiveness of our trespasses is what God had to overcome by executing his son so that he can fulfill his plan. This is the same thing that Paul is talking about. The second word is sins. Sins is a word that talks about the sinful nature and the state of all humanity. This is not necessarily an action. But the fact that all of the descendants of Adam and Eve are under the dominion and control of sin. So Paul is saying, this is who you were, Ephesian believers. You were unable to communicate with God. You were unable to bring life to yourself. Much more than that, your sins and trespasses, listen to this, were a result of your spiritual death. And your sins and trespasses further caused death. Not only that, death came to you through your trespasses and sins, and your death was shown to the world through your trespasses and sins. So do you see how death, trespasses, and sins are so connected to each other? Death, trespass, and sin. What a ruined existence. The second point he brings up, the second fact, is in the second half of verse 2. It says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul continues to talk to the Ephesian believers and says, you weren't just dead and separated from God. You were actively empowered and inspired by wicked spiritual forces. You're not just dead and separated from God. You are actively empowered by spiritual forces that are wicked. Remember, principalities, powers, rulers, and authorities that that they used to worship in Ephesus? Those demons have an ultimate ruler, the prince of the power of the air. The word prince, it's an Old Testament word again, which is a national or local or tribal leader. And this is none other than the devil, the gospels refer to him as the prince of this world and the ruler of demons. The spiritual forces that Paul is referring to are ultimately subject to Christ. We read that, right? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23. But we saw last week that there is a life outside of Christ. There is a life outside of the church. There is a life outside of God that was in this, these believers' past they were obedient to satanic forces and not only were they obedient to these forces, their very environment were was influenced by these satanic forces that are disobedient to God. And that's what characterizes that phrase, the sons of disobedience. This is a biblical way of saying disobedient people. The Bible uses terms like sons of the covenant. It uses terms like sons of the light, sons of this age, all describing groups of people with certain characteristics. Here, sons of disobedience means a group of people characterized by disobedience. The word used for disobedience also, also means unbelief. And they are in disconnected words, right? Since disobedience comes from unbelief. Much more, this isn't unbelief where someone says, I can't believe, or I'm not able to trust. This is unbelief where someone chooses to defy God. The prince of the power of the air is the epitome, is the zenith, right? Of the one that chooses to defy God. And the values and systems and people of this age follow his desires and his wishes. The world system, the world around us, is characterized by defiance against God, the sons of disobedience. So Paul tells the Ephesian believers that their previous state, dead in sins and trespasses, were also a state where they actively followed the world systems led by Satan to actively defy God. Now, although this was a lifestyle of ruin, this is not a lifestyle that they wanted to escape, Quite the opposite. Those who are dead in sins and trespasses actually enjoy defiance against God. So let's look at the beginning of verse 2. It says, In which you once walked following the course of this world. That's the next point. So to walk according to the world is to say, Brothers and sisters, Paul is saying, Your former life also included allowing the idolatry and impurity and sin of the world into your life. And we're going to see as we go through Ephesians that Paul exhorts them to put those lifestyles away since they're no longer part of a believer's life. Notice the words. He says, you once walked. Also translated, formerly walked. You used to walk in it, but that's not who you are anymore. The ideologies of this world, the way it tells you, to dress what the world determines is right and wrong. What the world determines is the definition of a human being. What the world determines is the right to live. What the world determines is the music you listen to. What the world determines is what true love, not what the world determines what true love is what the world determines true justice is, What the world determines that is acceptable to God. What the world determines that our marriages ought to be. What the world determines how we raise our children. What the world determines that our cars, our houses and our bank statements ought to be. What the world determines what our vacations ought to look like. What the world determines what we have to do with our bodies. What the world determines what we teach and preach from our pulpits. What the world determines, Ephesian brothers and sisters, Westmount brothers and sisters, what the world determines is how you formerly lived your life when you were dead in your sins and trespasses. The world didn't just tell you what your life ought to be. Your flesh and your mind, it loved it. It enjoyed it. Let's look at verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice Paul says, we all, we all lived in the passions of our flesh. So not only you, Ephesian believers, who were worshippers of the Satan- led forces. We also, the Jews, lived doing what we wanted in our flesh and our mind. We're all together in the same boat. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. We're all in the same boat. The word flesh here doesn't actually mean physical bodies. Otherwise, some of us would be more fleshly than others, right? Um, but Paul uses, well, some of us are, but not because of our sizes. Paul uses the word flesh, to describe the nature of human beings who are not connected to God's spirit. It is in opposition to what God's spirit wants. You can say it is the sinfulness and rebellious nature of human beings. our fists up in the air, saying, "No God, I wanted my way." This is what makes me feel good. Now, not only is this our rebelliousness, but it also depicts depicts something else. Our complete inability to do what pleases God. The flesh depicts our complete inability to do what pleases God. By very nature, the flesh does what is exactly opposite to what God wants. So nobody who lives in the passions of the flesh can ever do what pleases God. Paul describes this as carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. Of the body and of the mind. He's saying, your former state was so bad that every material part of you and every immaterial part of you is touched In fact, I'm going to to rephrase it. There is no part of you, there is no immaterial part of you, there is no material part of you that is untouched by rebellion and disobedience toward God. There was a news story a few years ago about a 24-year-old Indian nurse caught in a string of bank robberies in southwestern U.S., Her profile was unlike any other bank robber the FBI had known. This is an excerpt from the BBC article about her. Cor says her 21st birthday in November 2010 was the turning point. This is the legal drinking age in the US and her cousin planned a celebration holiday. The girls lied to their mothers and fled to Sacramento airport to fly to Las Vegas. Vegas had the world's largest collection of designer fashion shows under one roof, Christian Dior and Jimmy Choo. To core, this was a retail heaven full of daring. Gucci is more for everlasting. She says the girls bought killer outfits, heels and short dresses they had never been allowed to wear. I gambled, I won a couple of thousand and was pretty fun. I played blackjack and I kept winning, she says. With a dizzying streak of beginner's luck, Corr says she won $4,000 and was instantly hooked. That first trip became two, then three, and soon she was flying to Vegas monthly, accompanied by her brother and a revolving cast of friends. After a few trips, they started comping everything, says Cor, of the free hotel room and perks. Korr had grown a reputation as a fearless but fortunate gambler. She was known to play until she had chips worth $10,000 before spending it all on designer stores. I had a weakness for designer sunglasses, she admits. The casino treated her like royalty. Cora says she decided to get a credit line at the casino. Soon the casino agreed to raise her check to $20,000 and her bets increased. Core was on a roll. She was making money almost out of thin air and she had gained entry to the inner sanctum of the seductive nightlife of Las Vegas. But then things started to go wrong. The story continues about how she drained a quarter million from her life savings, and she started then robbing banks to pay her debt. Even though she gambled all her money away and went into debt because of a love for the good life and designer wear. This is what the journalist who wrote the article had to say in order to explain the strange phenomena of how a 24-year-old Indian nurse became a bank robber. Listen to what the journalist has to say. A lot of criminals, they're bad people. There's good criminals and bad criminals. Listen to this. There are some really bad people in this world, then there are good people who make bad decisions. I really believe Sandeep's case, whose Kor's first name, it was the latter. Can you believe it? This is the exact reason why Paul had to tell the Ephesian believers about their former state. Because the world can't make sense of these kind of things. Can you believe that A journalist now classifies bank robbers as good people who make bad decisions. Paul explains it quite clearly. This is not good people making bad decisions. This is people dead in trespasses and sins. People empowered by and following the prince of the power of the air people with lifestyles according to the passions of their flesh, fulfilling the desires of their heart and mind. Beloved, there might be some listening today that might be thinking, I have certainly not robbed a bank. I've not made decisions that are that bad. Maybe a little, but overall, I'm a good person. My actions and my deepest desires are good, and God will accept them. You might be thinking, humans may judge me, people will judge me, but God accepts me and loves me. People will call me a sinner, but God will give me a big bear hug when he sees me. I've done good things, I've said good things, I've given away things and sacrificed things for others you're missing the point. God's word says that even when you think you have your best thoughts, when your heart feels like it has the best intent, when your most charitable act is the biggest sacrifice that humans have seen this century, God hates it because every inch of you is steeped with rebellion against him. Your most self-sacrificial moment was considered high treason against God because you are separated from God in your sins, influenced by the evil one, and you are living to fulfill the desires of your mind and flesh that are opposed to God. The second half of verse 3 and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is the result of all that Paul has been telling the Ephesian believers? Paul uses the word nature. You were by nature. He's saying that it isn't just our actions and attitudes that bring God's wrath. The significance of this word is that he is talking about their very birth paul all the jews and all the gentiles and should i say you and i were inheritors of the status children of wrath, or objects of wrath because that one man adam and his wife eve brought sin into the whole world anyone who is outside christ that is the rest of mankind are objects of wrath. And this is doubly bad for anyone outside Christ because not only are you, beloved who are outside Christ, sons of disobedience, you are also children of wrath. Not only are you under God's judgment because of your actions, you are under God's wrath because you are merely a descendant of Adam himself. At this very moment... Anyone who is not in Christ is under God's wrath and is destined for God's wrath. If we are by nature the children of wrath and by lifestyle the sons of disobedience, there is no way to escape this terrible dilemma. If we are outside Christ, our very existence and actions brings about God's anger. This is the ruin of sin. This is the ruin of the unbeliever. And the only way to escape this ruin is if God delivers us. Which brings us to my second point, the riches of God. Let's look at verse 4 to verse 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Paul begins this passage with a contrast from verse 1. You were dead, but God. You were under God's wrath, but you are under God's grace. Paul uses three verbs in Greek to describe God's actions toward the Ephesian believers. And by that, to all of us who are in Christ here today. In chapter 1, he talks about how God's power was exerted toward us in Christ. Remember that? He exerted his power toward us in Christ in chapter 1. And now he uses three verbs with the Greek prefix with to each of them. He made us alive together with him. Or he co-enlivened us. He raised us up with him. Or he co-raised us. He seated us together with him, or he co seated us. Paul is contrasting what the past of the believers was and what our present is. What does it mean that God made us alive together with Christ? This is what it simply means that outside of Christ, we were spiritually dead, and in Christ, we are made alive. God has powerfully and dramatically changed our status from dead to alive by enabling us to participate in Christ's resurrection. In between these verbs, he injects the phrase, by grace you have been saved. Because he doesn't want them to forget that all of this is God's work. It's not done by our merit. This isn't a by-nature kind of thing. Remember the by-nature sons of wrath? This isn't a by-nature kind of thing. This isn't something that we get by being born. This is a by-grace kind of thing. This comes by God's gift to unmeriting sinners. Remember his statement about God's abundant grace to us? Ephesians 1, verse 7 and 8. This is Paul's reminder that the plan of God put into action long before time began to redeem us and to forgive our sin and reveal his grand plan to us was lavished by the same grace. It is the same grace that exerts his saving power toward us. And all of it, God's work on our behalf is offered freely he continues to say, God raised us together with Christ. Now this doesn't mean that we accompany him on a journey to life. It means that God has united believers, the church with Christ. So in such a way that the resurrection of Christ was also the resurrection of the church. Let me repeat that. He's united with us with Christ in such a way that the resurrection of Christ was the resurrection of the church. Every believer, therefore, participates in this resurrection. In Ephesians, the resurrection of believers with Christ is already in the past. It's taken place. God, through Paul, tells us that as death was a present reality for their spirit, leading to physical death, the resurrection was a present reality for the believer. You and I, are made alive and raised up spiritually, and it will lead to our physical resurrection. Now the last verb is that God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Paul tells us that believers are currently in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are where Christ is in the heavenly places. Remember the heavenly places? It's where Christ has been exalted to above every principality and power and ruler and authority. Now, the Ephesian believers and all of us here are going to say, um, Paul, it's great that, you know, we're in the heavenly realm, but we're all right here Uh, in Ephesus or in our case in Peterborough. But Paul is circling back on his doctrine on the oneness of the head and body. What we considered last time. Just as Christ is seated in the heavenlies, but is so tightly joined with his body here on earth, such that the church on earth is his fullness while we gather. In the same way, the church is also tightly connected with Christ and united with him. So that when Christ is seated in the heavenly places, we are seated In him and seated with him because we are united with him. In both cases, our senses, our sight and our touch, our smell, our hearing, our taste, can't perceive it. We can't sense Christ in our gathering. We can't sense being in the heavenly places. But it's true because we're united with him. In the future, what this means is that we will enjoy the same results of the resurrection that he enjoys. A new body that lives with God's sustaining power. This is what's amazing about God's power exercised toward the church. Those who were formerly dead in sins and trespasses have been made alive to God. Those who followed the prince of the power of the air are now seated above Satan and his minions in Christ Jesus in the heavenly realm and those who fulfilled the passions of the flesh are raised up together with Christ to a new life. Those who were sons of disobedience and children of wrath are in Christ, given all the benefits and privileges that belong to God's Son. That hymn writer wrote, sunk in ruin, sin and misery, bound by Satan's captive chain, guided by his artful treachery, hurrying on to endless pain. My Redeemer, my Redeemer, plucked me as a brand from hell. God has completely changed our lives by uniting us with Christ, all done freely by God's power without any merit for the sinner. Why does God do this freely without any of the sinner's merit? Let's read verses four to nine again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him, seated us with him in heavenly places, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look at these phrases. God's rich mercy, love with which he loved us. By grace, riches of his grace in his kindness. By grace, gift of God god's mercy is god's pity and god's compassion on sinners under the ruin and calamity of sin remember the bank robber in the news article the calamity of sin was totally deserved right but god extends his mercy to sinners because we are ensnared and have nothing good to give back to god there is no merit there's nothing to commend us to god Our bodies and minds are entrenched with sin. And all they do is bring God's wrath upon ourselves. But the mercy of God is also not detached from the pain of sin. And this is how we know that God's mercy and compassion is rich. The richness of his mercy. This is how we know it's rich. Because the mercy of God is completely informed by the result of sin because his son, Jesus Christ had to die. The mercy of God is rich because he knows what sin does. His son, Jesus Christ had to die. Jesus Christ was not dead in sins and trespasses. In fact, he was the only human who was truly alive in every sense. He is fully obedient to God. Jesus Christ did not follow the prince of the power of the air. He said, he only does the father's will. Jesus Christ was not the son of wrath. The father declared that he was the beloved son. He is the beloved son that pleases him. Yet, Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of sins. As Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 7. And that is the richness of God's mercy to us helpless sinners. The cause of the demonstration of that rich mercy, it says here, is the great love with which he loved us. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 to 5, Paul tells us about this love. The love that predestined us to adoption as sons. The love that caused God to predetermine before the beginning of all creation that you and I would be his children. It plays out in it because remember the we and the us that were the sons of disobedience. It is the same us that this love is directed towards the same people that were the children of wrath, the same people that willingly rebelled against him, rebelled against him, the same people that were so entrenched in fulfilling what our flesh And mind wanted that we were unable to save ourselves from the ruin of sin. The us that he loves in verse 5 is the same we who are the children of wrath. And why does he exercise this rich mercy and great love towards us? Let's read verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. He does it so that he might display his grace for all to see forever and ever. Remember the age that is coming, the age when all things will be set right under Christ? That age is an age that will last forever and ever. It's the same age in which God wants to put his grace up on display. God's agenda and plan have always been to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of his glorious grace. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14. God's agenda and plan have always been predetermined and planned. And we see that one of the results of this plan is that his grace will be put on display through exercising his rich mercy and great love toward sinners who are doomed under God's wrath. Let's read verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul zooms in on the grace that, is secured for salva- uh, that has secured salvation for sinners. The same thing he reminded them a few verses ago. It is God's work, God's free gift, that is a vehicle by which salvation comes to you and me. Faith here is the response that appropriates God's salvation to us. What is faith? Faith faith is trust and reliance. What is the trust and reliance in? It is in the salvation that God has secured through the death of his son, which brings forgiveness of sin and trespass, sins and trespasses. It is the salvation God has secured by uniting us with Christ and raising us up, thereby making us alive. It is the salvation that God has secured by exercising his mercy and love, so that by his work alone, the riches of grace will echo through the universe forever and ever and ever and ever. Paul wants to make sure that the believers in Ephesus understand this. So he continues and he says, this is not your own doing. What is this? This This is the entire concept of god saving helpless dead sinners by grace through faith this is not the work not the invention not the scheme not the execution and definitely not the will of any human being it is the gift originating from god it originates outside any human based on god's grace meaning He gives it freely apart from any human merit, and we receive it by trusting in the fact that his work is able to save us. Paul adds one more phrase, not of works lest anyone should boast. Paul isn't saying that no works are involved because work is involved in salvation. I don't mean to shock you over here. (laughs) He is saying that this is not secured by human effort. It is a work of God in order that no human being can boast in their own efforts or give credit to themselves. But Paul is also not saying that there is no boasting in the context of the whole passage. There is boasting, but the boasting is in God's immeasurable riches and kindness because that's what he wants to put on display forever and ever and ever and ever. There is boasting. Because God is showing off his grace to the universe by saving sinful humans. By his own effort, exercising his own mercy and his love toward us as a free gift to be received by faith. Therefore, the one saved by grace through faith boasts in God who gives graciously. If the result of being dead in trespasses and sins, living under Satan's power and direction and being the children of disobedience results in God's wrath, what does being saved by grace through faith, by God's work, exercised in mercy and love toward us result in? What does that result in? Let's read verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship is used in the Old Testament to talk about God's creation work. What's also important is that Paul has sprinkled the entire text of Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 10 with plurals. We, us, you, y'all, you guys, right? But, But now he comes to a place where he uses the singular form of the word workmanship used plural everywhere else in the bible he is bringing this back to the focus the church the body of christ the church is the beginning of the new creation and those who have been saved by grace through faith that is the church this is the new creation in christ jesus the new creation has a goal and it has purposes and that is good works God's workmanship resulted in good works according to God's purpose. We saw that God has a cosmic plan, purpose before the foundation of the world. Paul also tells us that he has good works that he has prepared for the church. And that good works or those good works is also part of the cosmic plan prepared before the foundation of the world. Believer, your eternal destiny is not only the thing is not the only thing that God pre-planned your present life and the works you do that glorify God have also been pre-planned by God. I want to stress that these works are not what causes God to save us. These are not works that take us from death to life. These are works that demonstrate the grace of God to the universe the boasting of God's rich mercy and great love and kindness toward us. These are the works that stand in contrast to our previous life. In our previous state of death, we walked according to the course of this world, inviting God's wrath upon ourselves. But in this new state of life, we walk according to the good works that God has prepared before the foundation of the world so that we can boast about the one who has prepared salvation for us. And what does it result in? Not his wrath, but his pleasure. So you see, even the good works we do today are a result of God's grace. Even the good works we do today are a result of God's grace. Why? Because he prepared them beforehand so that we can walk in them. So coming back to the question we started with, How is the life of the church with Christ as its head contrasted with the life of those who are led by demonic forces in this world? The work of God has divided this world into two groups. Those who are spiritually dead and follow the prince of the power of the air, resulting in God's wrath. And the other group is those who are made alive in Christ doing the good works of God. These two groups cannot be more polar opposite than Paul already describes them to be. If you're listening to the sermon this morning and you started today by trusting you in your own works and intentions to save you, I hope that by now you realize that being made alive and being united with Christ cannot be a result Of your own works. The only way you can be made alive is if you trust God's finished work in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus died for the forgiveness of your sins and God raised him up from the dead and seated him above every authority in the universe. God offers to unite you with Christ and make you alive by forgiving your sins and trespasses. He will free you from the power of the devil and this world and empower you to walk in good works that please him. You need to receive this from him by trusting his work, abandoning your own merits. To us who have received the finished work of God, exercised towards us by the riches of his mercy and his great love. Beloved at Westmount, God has prepared good works for you. These are not works that receive salvation. They can't. These are works that he has prepared for you so you can boast about God's kindness, grace, mercy, and love to all creation. If any, this season, the season we're in right now, not winter, but the lockdown, is filled with opportunities for good works. We are already... Encouraged by so many stories about how God's works are being done in this body. Orphans and widows, sacrificially supported, the weak and tired, encouraged. Even I have been a recipient of your gracious generosity at these times. And I thank you. And I encourage you continue to show the world and these demonic forces that you, that we are recipients of the riches of God's grace and kindness. As we continue in Ephesians, we're going to see more concrete examples of these good works. And these works would then be exercised in our churches and our homes. So brothers and sisters, as God's living workmanship, do good works to boast about his character, his grace, his kindness, his mercy, and his love. Let's pray guilty, vile, and helpless. We spotless lamb of God was he full atonement. Can it be hallelujah? What a savior father. Thank you for the work that we could never have done. How could dead people serving our own passions empowered by the devil? ever purge our own sins away we thank you for what you have done through your son jesus christ to the praise of the glory of your name we thank you that it is enough and it will continue to be enough and that because of the power you exercise in him we have been made alive together with him raised together with him seated together with him in the heavenlies in christ Help us do the works that you have prepared already, the works that are empowered by your spirit, the works that declare your praises in this age and the age to come, to the praise of the glory of your name. name. Amen.